Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. It's the hallmark of the church. It's what makes us who we are is putting others first. We've talked about who belongs. We've covered subjects about kingdom values and kingdom principles and this morning, as Sister Chelsea has already mentioned, we're going to talk from the subject, A God of Justice. If you'll join me in the book of Micah, we'll read one verse of scripture in chapter 6, and we will make our way through a journey this morning that will comprise what we've talked about this time. But I always say, and, and I, want to, I want to reiterate today, just because we're closing out a particular subject or a particular series doesn't mean it's over. Because once we hear the word, then we are obligated to do something with that. And so let's don't look at this as a final chapter, but the beginning of what God wants us to do in his kingdom. Micah chapter 6, in verse 8, the Bible says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? And here it is, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. You see, injustice seems to be quite common, I would say, in our human history. The inherent nature of sin, it caused this depravity of decency. It caused mankind to, to experience the curse of selfishness and allowed that to run a rampant course through a, through a lifetime of generation after generation of compromising values that, that caused both personal anguish and in dealing with others. It created a myriad of things, but it created such things as a class system or a social class, the, the grouping of people in some sort of hierarchical social category. This is nothing, nothing foreign to us here in this country, but, but we've heard it until we, we don't really hear it anymore. We hear it all the time. It's, it's, it's a common, common thing, the upper class, the, the middle class, or the lower classes. These memberships in these social classes depend on such things as education or, or wealth or perhaps even occupation and certainly overall income. And all of this kind of plays into this social construct that if we're not careful, we can seek to get into one of those categories ourselves or out of one of those categories ourselves. And then it can cause us to look back or look down on others seemingly marginally because of where they might be in that predisposed or presupposed class system. There's not many things in this world that's worse than overlooked people. There's not many things that are, that are worse than, than people who are marginalized in society because of where 
they may be or where they may find themselves. No, no matter who it's perpetrated by or no matter the reasoning behind the act, there's really nothing more, more provoking, at least emotionally, than those who are mistreated, whether it's children or whether it's adults or entire groups of people, marginalized people, people who are outcasts because of something that they really and truly can't take care of themselves. We see something very eerily familiar in the New Testament. Great gain was being made at the expense of those who were otherwise poor and destitute, ceremonially unfit. The high priest and temple overseers had created an economy within the religious order to buy and sell sacrifices for worship. And those who could not provide for themselves, for those who were commonly exempt from entering in, were left quite literally out. Because of this, the disciples witnessed something very, very unforgettable. Because of what was occurring, the disciples They witnessed something very, very out of the ordinary, if you will. And they witnessed it on more than one occasion. Jesus saw what was happening there. And Jesus became incensed by what he saw. He saw the temple being turned into a place of commerce. And Jesus took that personally. Enraged, animated, forceful, There was no doubt on that day what emotion he evoked. Jesus didn't just speak the words. He didn't just say them, but he put action with his words. He put physical force behind this. Tables turned on their sides, doves flying and fluttering as the capsized cages rolled across the floor. Men's cries both in anger and in disbelief at what was happening. Jesus did what we call in the south, he cleaned house. Temple life wasn't always this way, but it had become that. At one time, sacrifices were sold, yes, but they were done over on the Mount of Olives. They were Sold and money was exchanged there, but the high priest Caiaphas responding to pressures of this pseudo-Judeo-political system granted permission for these markets to be relocated into the temple of God. Into the court, hear me now, of the Gentiles. And so overnight, a place that had been dedicated for worship to Jehovah a place that had been dedicated to the sacrifice and the worship to God Almighty, the God of the universe, was now merely a shopping center. Gentile worshipers were crowded out by greedy merchants, and the Jewish leaders just seemed to be okay with this. This was just all right, but Jesus was far from okay with this. You see, the way they saw it was the Gentile worshipers can't enter into the temple anyway. And so what would it hurt? But that is not the way the Lord looked at this scenario. Mark eleven seventeen, the Bible says, And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? but ye have made it a den of thieves. Jesus quoted Isaiah 56 and 7, 
When, he, when Isaiah quoted the words, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Somebody say that with me. For all people. And so nothing makes Jesus more angry than injustice. We serve a God who cares about justice. And so without much effort, without much review, without much, much, much hard reading, we can read his word and come to that conclusion that God cares about justice. Deuteronomy 32 and 4, for example, says that he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. You see, the word judgment there is the Hebrew word for justice. It's mishpat. It interestingly is, is mentioned 421 times just in the Old Testament and is frequently translated into the word judgment as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 4. The Bible says that all his ways are judgment, mishpat, but Justice, a different word. Sadiq is and right is he. Sadiq means just, lawful, and righteous in government to a moral and ethical standard. And so can I say it like this? In other words, God is just, but he is not just just in his words. He's not just just in what he says, but God conforms to his own word or law. He's not only setting the rules, but he's following them himself. And so he is a God of justice, and he is just. Because he says it, he does it. Psalm 146 and 7 through 9 elaborates on his justice by declaring that he upholds the cause of the oppressed. And so he not only says that we ought to love justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly, but he does this himself and he demonstrates his justice by his actions. He doesn't just say it. He doesn't just put it in word and so that we can read it and do it, but he's already done it Him. Self. In fact, Jesus performed many miracles for the benefit of the poor and oppressed. He sought them out. He sought out widows. He, he sought out those who were sick and those who were societal outcasts such as lepers. He looked for them and he healed them. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but is it any wonder that the first miracle that, were, that was performed by the apostles in Acts chapter 3 was the healing at the, at the gate, the temple? called beautiful of the lame man that man who had been brought there many years many years they had just traveled with him and carried him to the temple and laid him without the gate and just laid him there so that he could beg for his life he could beg for his sustenance but then Peter and John came along and they did what Jesus said 
to do. They reached down and they said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And I don't want to meander too far here, but that just puts me in this mindset for some reason, I don't know why, of baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. You see, they had brought this man every day of his life. He couldn't do anything on his own. They brought him and his bed and just laid him without the temple for him to just beg for alms. And the Bible said that he looked unto Peter thinking that he was going to get something from him, some sort of tangible thing that he would hand him that would just get him through the day. He couldn't go in the temple. He could only sit outside of the temple. He was ceremonially unfit. He was unclean. He was lame from his birth. He could not go in. But Peter and John said, such as I have, give I thee in the name. And so once we were also that way, we couldn't enter in. Our sins separated us from God. Our sins separated us from entering into the temple. But aren't you thankful that somebody came along and gave you a Bible study? Somebody came along and told you about the goodness of God and His Spirit. And you were baptized in His name and filled with His Spirit. And now we can enter in to His presence. So not only did they believe what Jesus said, but they did what Jesus said. Not only did they believe in justice, but they practiced justice. And if God cares about justice, He cares about us caring about justice. Injustice, we know, is at an all-time high. The, the people of God must be counterculture and live a life principled by the Word of God. Solomon establishes this principle in Proverbs 11 and 1. He said, a false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now, while most of us no longer use weights and balances in commerce, most of us have, have transcended that technological advancement of those days. We don't use weights and balances in our jobs, so to speak, in that same regard. But the principle of the call is no different. A just weight. It's his delight. The call is for honesty. And the call is for integrity in every pursuit of life. In business, in relationships, in the church, without the church, with our families, with our co-workers, in every transaction, in every circumstance, honesty and integrity balanced by justice. There's enough of the world. You can just go to a car dealership this afternoon and find out that there's enough of the world that's taking advantage of people on a daily basis. You can just walk into any local establishment and find that out within a few moments that there is injustice in this world and advantage is being taken of people on a daily basis. And so let it never be said of the child of God and let it never be said of the church of God. It will always be that dishonesty and abuse and attaining an upper hand by deceit whether by cunningness or by craftiness is not in any any circumstance permissible by one that is proclaiming to be Christ-like and can I get somebody to say amen? God requires much, but God requires more from me. 
And so what we are required to do is just that, do. Much of what is required requires doing. Let me say it like this, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace through faith and faith requires action. Many believe in one extreme to the other. They, they believe that either you, you don't have to believe anything and you can do whatever you want to. Others believe that all you got to do is just do a, a series of good things and just live a good life and you don't have to believe anything. Others believe that's all you have to do is just believe and everything's going to be all right. But that is a one extreme of the other scenario and neither will, neither will bring success. But both will ensure undoubtedly a life of slow-moving ditch dwelling. We need balance. And so if God, in fact, and He does indeed require more, what does God require more of us? We read it, Micah 6. We'll read verses 1 through 8. Bible says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear Thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, oh my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shidom unto Gilgal that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord wherewith, and here's where it turns from, 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 from speaking to, this is a, a conversation back, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here's the answer. In, in verse 8, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. In verse 6 of that chapter, Micah asks a very rhetorical but a very important question that I'm certain has been at least on the heart or the lips of many here today. The same question, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? God has just listed a laundry list of things that he's done for them. He's brought them up out of Egypt. He saved them from the bondage and brought Brought them into a promised land. And now the answer is, with all of God has done, what shall I bring to him? What can I bring to such a great God who has done such a great thing? And so then he lists this lofty offering and enlists these elaborate sacrifices, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, even his firstborn child. Mind you now, this is on the heels of what God has confronted them with, the controversy in the previous verses this is their response to it naturally for all that God has done for all the blessing and all the all the 
rescue from Egypt, God's provision, the manna in the wilderness, and the protective hand of God that has been upon them. God appeals to them to testify, if it be possible, that He has never, ever done them anything but good all the way back to the beginning. He said, if you can, go ahead and try it. Go ahead and testify against me if you can, that I've never done anything but good for you. And this is their response. They realize in that moment the severity of the controversy and they understand their guilt and then they begin to do what humans do. They begin to bargain. Perhaps even try to buy their way out of a situation with sacrifice. Noble? Sure. Typical human response? Yes, it is. But it is not, hear me, it is not the answer. Because you cannot buy your way to a blessing. Because sacrifice alone can never be the substitute for disobedience. Obedience. There is only one antithesis to disobedience, and it is naturally obedience, not sacrifice. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 15, 8 through 9. He says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments. Of men. Again, quoting Isaiah, Jesus deals with the unbalanced approach of an outward sacrifice and an outward worship with an inwardly disobedient heart. Hear me today. It does not, it will not ever work because it is an out of balance approach. It is not just, it is unjust, and it is out of sync with reality. And the Lord said, that is an abomination to me. Now there's a lot of things that we can go and we'd like to point to in the Bible that is an abomination to the Lord. We, we can point to things in this world that may not be so close to home that we like to call abomination. But God said an unbalanced approach to me is an abomination to, this, to, to me. And so not only perversion is an abomination to the Lord, but coming unto Him with an outward appearance of obedience while inwardly we are disobedient to his word he said is an abomination to me Jesus again confronts this pharisaical approach to living for God in Matthew 23 and 23 he says woe unto you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law hear it judgment mercy and faith these ought to be all you have done and not to leave the other undone if I can say it like this we can give all we want to give we can tithe all we want to tithe and if you think I'm preaching against tithing well I don't know how to help you with that but we can do it all we want to give we can tithe it's biblical we are to tithe we are to give back God what is already his but 
But what I'm saying this morning is that we can, we can go through the motions and we can get the outward look just right. But if what lies beneath, what, what is on the, the inward part of the surface is not what is portrayed on the outside, it will all be for nothing. And so equally, we can attend to very important things, don't hear me wrong this morning, to personal holiness and absolute morality in our lives. But if we don't couple that with love and care and attention to others, our lives will simply be imbalanced. And God said, that's an abomination to me. Sacrifice in one area will never, ever make up for a lack of disobedience in another. And so the Lord, the Lord is looking for pure hearts. The Lord is looking, I've already said it, for obedient hearts. God is looking for people who will serve Him and serve others to do exactly what Micah 6 and 8 admonishes. To do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The operating, the functioning word, do. Not just say, not just think, but do. You know, exposing intention to do something is not going to do anything. Exposing your intention to take care of some things will, will not always do. And, and simply stating it will never be enough. We've all heard this. I'm certain that we have. We've heard this. It's become so popular in our modern, postmodern society to express good thoughts towards someone. I know what you're going through. I see the turmoil of your life and I, I'm sending good thoughts your way. I'm, ex, I'm, a, I, I, I'm expressing good thoughts towards you. I'm not trying to sound cynical this morning. I promise you that. But I've even heard so, so much recently, even yesterday, that, that I'll send good vibes. What does that mean? If I could meet with somebody after church that really knows what that means, I don't. Isn't vibes short for vibrations? I don't. How do you send that? And how does that? I'll move on. You see, things like this, things like this that are said, this is going to sting a little bit, but that usually just helps the person that's saying it. It usually just makes the person that's saying it feel better about not doing anything about it. I'll take it one step further than this, and, and I'll, uh, if you really think about it, saying you'll pray about something, when you can do something about something, I'll, I'll pray about your situation. If you have the means to help, let me just give you an example. This is from the Bible. If someone's hungry, me telling them that I'll pray about their situation while I got a pantry full of food at home, we got to check the expiration dates on stuff or whether or not we're going to eat it. We should, have to check. We should already ate that. 
I got a pantry. I'm not saying I'm, I'm please, I'm not boasting. But if I say someone's hungry, and I'll say, well, I'll pray about that. I'll pray that someone will put some food on your front porch when I've got a pantry full of it. James covered this. He said in chapter 2 of his epistle, verse 15, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, oh man, not that it's dying, it's already dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, thou hast faith and I have works, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith is doing not just expressing. Faith is doing something about it, not just saying that you want to or will in the future. And so God said, do justly and live justly, not just in your thoughts and in your practicality of life, not just where you are thinking about going, but do it. And when, when we really think about it for a moment, if we, if we think about all that God has done for us, when we really look back over the timeline of our existence in the kingdom of God leading up to it, it isn't some mystical, some celestial, or some extraordinary means that got us to that end. Now, of course, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the infilling of His Spirit by evidence of speaking, is a miraculous thing that nobody but God can give us, and I am not taking away from that in, 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 at all, in, in, in no way, shape, or form. But, but, but that is not to say that every single thing that God has done for us has been some miraculous lightning bolt. Angels have appeared. Something. We are certainly recipients of things like that. But, but, but hear me now. Much of what has transpired leading up to that. And what has, has much has transpired beyond that moment. Was common man just putting himself out there for common man. Let me just break it down here for a moment. Somebody witnessed to you. I already said this. Somebody came alongside of you. Somebody put their arm around you. Somebody walked beside you. Somebody reached down and picked you up when you could not get yourself off of the ground. Somebody put their hand in your hand and lifted you up when you were down and out. And somebody showed what Micah 6 and verse 8 says. They showed His love and they showed His mercy toward us even when we did not deserve it and so when we recognize that and when we embrace that fact that is what will lead us to show the proper attitude and the compulsion to do the work of God I cannot be so arrogant about others when I take a peek in the rearview mirror of my life and see where God has brought me from I cannot be so arrogant and look down on someone else that may be at a low point in their life when I realize but for the grace of God there go I 
when I realize what I've been given, I have no choice but to show mercy. When I realize what God has done for me, I have no choice but to extend grace. And when I realize where he has brought me from, I have no choice but to have compassion on those who have yet to find their self in that same position. It is going to be my hand and my feet. And so this brings us back full circle to the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus never abused anyone. But he was not afraid to confront injustice. And equally, he was not afraid to confront those who refused to repent of their actions. When Jesus entered the temple and confronted the merchants and money changers, he directly assaulted the most powerful religious family and system of injustice in Jerusalem. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Annas, the son of Seth, he had been appointed high priest by the Roman governor Cyrenus in 86 or 7, and he served until being deposed in AD 15. Annas used this time in office to build a thriving business that came to be known as the booths or the bazaars of the son of Annas. All five sons of, of this man followed their father in the office of high priest. And the booths of Annas had a monopoly on the sale of sacrificial animals. And they conducted their lucrative trade in the court of the Gentiles. When Jesus cleansed the temple of this corruption, Annas felt the sting of this in his wallet. Annas, Caiaphas, and the rest of their cartel were wicked men who didn't mind exploiting worshipers for personal gain. But the, for the sake of political and economic gain, they, there were others who were being excluded and marginalized because of it. Jesus explains his actions with reference to Isaiah 56 and 7 where Isaiah protests the corrupt worship of God. The temple had one purpose. That's it. To draw all nations to and by prayer. The corrupt actions of these chief priests compelled the opposite where it no longer drew, but it pushed away. It no longer created an atmosphere of inclusion, but it created an atmosphere of Jewish exclusivism. It had ceased to do what it was intended and created and required to do. But Jesus still insists that his house be called a house of prayer. Jesus insists that his house be a house of justice and a house of righteous judgment, not an exclusive club for only those who can offer something to the establishment. And this can only be accomplished through and by humble prayer. We must pray in this house to gain God's perspective about compassion and judgment and not our own human reasoning. It won't be easy. It won't be okay to just cavalierly enter in. It won't be convenient seeking justice and pursuing it. 
it won't be comfortable availing ourselves to the will of God. But hear me this morning, it is absolutely necessary. It won't feel good always. It won't always be convenient. But it is a must do. Our world is filled with injustice and good intentions will not be what rights the ship. There is only one entity in this earth that can do the difference and it is the church of the living God. There is only one people that can make a difference with their compassion for other people and it is the people of the living God. God to be his hands and to be his feet and that is the only thing that will correct the injustice and so how how you ask how should we respond to injustice in our world well I'll tell you the answer begins with acknowledging our past it wasn't it was it was the remedy for the children of Israel when he brought them in to the promised land he said remember where I brought you from remember to guard yourself against this feeling of entitlement by constantly remembering where I brought you from. You see, they were to live in houses that they didn't build. They were to they were to eat from gardens that they didn't plant. They were to drink the fruit of vines that they did not cultivate. And this act was to constantly remind them to show compassion to and administer justice on behalf of the foreigner and the less fortunate the stranger, the pilgrim, those who were otherwise left out. But sadly, sadly, Israel soon forgot. And here we are in this temple, this this common place, this place for all nations. But now it's it started pushing people away. And there's only one small group of people left. And, and so let me just say this as, as I'm bringing this down this morning. Equally. Us, I'm talking to us, oneness Pentecostals are only just a few generations removed from worshiping under brush arbors while being pelted by rotten fruit. Oh yeah, it happened just because we didn't see it and just because we heard stories doesn't mean that it didn't occur because it absolutely did. They were mocked. They were called names such as holy rollers, accused of being devil possessed and insane but because they persevered through all of this, they were families after families after families that were touched by the power of God and as the years passed though brush arbors were replaced by state of the art church facilities now they feature the greatest the greatest innovations in technology the people on the pews went to, to higher education and landed better paying jobs many of them re- achieving respectability in the community now hear me while there is nothing inherently evil in the advancement or the achievement or even affluence there is one thing that we must never forget and that is where God has brought us from we can't forget where we came from and we can't we can't forget the disadvantages of those humble beginnings that led to the eventual successes and so let me say it like this if the previous generation didn't let the uphill climb take them out of the out of the race then we can't allow the seemingly easy descent calls us to lose sight of what God has called us to do I refuse I refuse to be at ease in Zion and we cannot turn our back on anyone 
who is persecuted or who is disadvantaged and that was us. We have to understand that we must stay humble and we must stay grounded and rooted in our faith and with the Lord's help we can do what God has called us to do. Our church This place is a place where everyone can find love and compassion regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their social status, or their economic resources. I'm coming to a close if you'll stand. I had a whole long story to read. We can never... Forget where God has brought us from. I know I'm talking to people who love people and who have compassion upon people. But there is a danger of forgetting. And there is a danger of falling into a place and a pattern of just coasting and not doing. I recently heard a message preached somewhere between I don't know, Miami and the North Pole. A man who spoke, very adamantly spoke, and recalled a meeting that he was in previously. It was a meeting that was called to analyze and to discuss the evangelism of a certain community, a certain ethnic predominance that was in that community. And, and we can let our minds run. Let's don't, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to go to a specific predominant ethnic community. As the meeting came to a close, he said, the atmosphere of the room was charged. The excitement and the the anticipation of reaching for this people group had so affected that that meeting. And he he said in his own words, he, he felt the faith and the confidence in their hearts that they were truly ready to move forward and do the work that God had called them to do when a voice spoke up in the back of the room. Very matter-of-factly, certainly within the context of the, of, the, of, the, of the meeting, and at that particular moment, completely factual, pragmatic, true words, they said, if we seek this out, And if we reach for this people, we can lose everything that we have worked to build over the last 40 years. He said that the literal oxygen was sucked out of the room. It it depleted every wind that was blowing that brought the sails ready to to sail forward. It just brought everything to a halt. They stated the obvious. It was pragmatic. It was practical. But hear me this morning. We can never allow the pragmatism, the practicality of what God, to to try to measure that up to what God has called us to do. There's a whole world out there. And we can look at that and say, that's too big for us. We can never do it. We can't do this. It, It will just disrupt everything in this community. But you hear me this morning. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He knows the end from the beginning. And if we'll just do this, He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly 
and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. If we this morning, right now, will make up our minds individually that I'm going to do that right there. If we'll just do that, if we'll handle that side of it, hear me right now, God, he'll just do the rest. We, we don't have to worry about losing anything. We don't have to worry about stumbling and falling because he said, you just go and you just preach and you just make disciples and I will be with you all the way to the end. Amen. That means it's done. It's settled. It's already done. And so if that's you this morning, if you're going to make up your mind to do the will of God, if you're going to make up your mind to love mercy and to do justly and to walk humbly with him for just a moment, why don't you lift your hands and why don't you cry out to God to take everything out of us, Lord, that is not of you. Rid us, God, of every preconceived notion, God, that is not of you. Take away every stumbling block, God, that would cause us to, 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 to back up and to analyze and to, and, to, and to practically try to navigate around, God. But help us to do your will, to walk humbly with you, Lord, to love mercy and to do justly and to be your hands and your feet. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. We're going to do it. And we're going to do it together. We're going to reach for this community and beyond. We're already doing it. But God's about to speed up the process. And we're fixing to see an influx. We're fixing to see an outpouring. And I believe it in Jesus' name that we're going to do it for the power and the glory of God. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.